Research for the game music at Queen's Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Dan School of Drama and Music. Before we get started on this episode, I wanted to quickly discuss an issue that we encountered in the development of it, particularly given its topic on women composers and sound designers in video games. Michelle will discuss the work of M. Halberstadt in this episode, in particular her work as a sound designer on the game Night in the Woods. As you may have already read, the composer of that game, Alec Holoka, was accused of sexual abuse in the wake of the Me Too movement, leading to his eventual death by suicide. We struggled with deciding whether to keep this content or not, but in the end, we've decided to keep it in order to highlight Halberstadt's work, which was completed independently of Holoka's. We don't think it's especially fair for a woman such as Halberstadt to be an unintentional victim of Holoka's actions, given the subject of this episode. It was a hard decision, and we mulled over it for quite a while now, but we're hoping it's the right one. As a result, we've edited our sound examples to focus more narrowly on Halberstadt's sound design. Thank you for your understanding. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Game Music 101. I'm Dr. Stephanie Lind, and I'm here with my research assistants, Elizabeth Baxter, Michelle Kasabowski, Brooke Spencer, and today we're going to talk about women in video game music. Each of us has decided to pick a woman who's been involved in game music, mostly from the composition side, but we have one exception to that. And we're also going to take a look today at what they're best known for and some of the music that we really love that they've created over the years. So starting with Liz, who did you look at for today's podcast? So I decided to look at Mishiru Yamane, who's a Japanese composer, born in 1963, and she worked for Konami. She's best known for her work on the Castlevania series, particularly the Symphony of the Night. I decided to take a look at the music of Yoko Shimomura, uh, one of the best known female Japanese video game composers. Shimomura has been really well known for her work on Street Fighter 2, but also for more modern games uh, such as Kingdom Hearts and some of the Final Fantasy series. Brooke, who did you look at today? So I looked at American composer and author Winifred Phillips. Some of the musical compositions that she's best known for include the 2004 game God of War, Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation, and also the music for the Little Big Planet series. Michelle, who did you look at? So I am the person who has the exception to the compositional side here. And I looked at M. Halberstadt, who is actually a sound designer. And her background is that she did an MFA in new media at Ryerson University in Toronto, and then went on to get a diploma in sound design for visual media from the Vancouver Film School. And now she works as a sound designer for a company out of Vancouver called A Shell in the Pit. So some of the games that the company A Shell in the Pit Audio have worked on are Rogue Legacy, Night in the Woods, Wandersong, and Parkitect. So I'm really curious why you chose the person that you did. I had heard of um, Castlevania as a series, and I remembered looking at specifically the Symphony of the Night for musical examples. I can't remember exactly what the context was, but when I was looking through lists of well-known female composers and I saw the Castlevania Symphony of the Night, I remember really liking the soundtrack, and so I decided to take a look at it specifically through that connection. I know for myself, I, I guess I was kind of interested in seeing what women were doing in a broader sense in sound design in video games, looking at composition, but also potentially looking outside at design as well. And when I came across M. Halberstadt, it was really neat because I think she's Canadian based off of her background. I don't have any 
you know, hard evidence saying that she was born in Canada, but it was cool to find out that she is, you know, working in the Canadian video game scene and is seemingly quite a young person within that scene as well. So quite relatable, I think, to probably a lot of us sitting around the table. Yeah, uh, the reason I chose Winifred Phillips is actually because I'm currently reading her book. Her book is called A Composer's Guide to Game Music, and uh, because of the research I'm currently doing, a lot of the stuff that she's talking about relates to my research. Once I started reading her book, I actually found out that she did a lot of the music uh, for games that I had previously played, or I was interested in looking at the music for. So when I did a little bit of research on her background, um, I kind of was surprised and uh, was quite interested in what she had to offer in the video game community and also what she's creating still. Yeah, and I ended up looking at Yoko Shimomura uh, mainly because of how well she's known for, for Street Fighter. This is one of the games I ended up teaching fairly extensively on when I taught the video game music course about two years ago. Mainly because the, I find the Street Fighter themes really They've become very strongly enmeshed in our culture of video games. They're instantly recognizable by anybody who's played games during that era. People will sing them as soon as they hear the first opening bars of them. And so I wanted to take a look at a little bit at why they're as catchy as what they are. What I found really interesting when I looked at her body of work is that that Street Fighter game was actually not representative of what most of her music sounds like. She's actually shifted to a pretty dramatically different style. So Brooke, you talked a little bit in terms of Winifred Phillips on how this connected to some of the research that you're doing. What is the research that you're doing? So some of the research that I'm currently looking at is how nostalgia is used in video games and how music actually amplifies this or like creates this experience for players. So Winifred Phillips, some of the chapters that she talks about is immersion and how that affects the player and how potentially that could affect someone's emotions while playing the game. So a lot of the stuff I have to kind of pick apart is the emotion of the player and how that is affected through music because nostalgia is something that is created through the player's mind, right? It's uh, nostalgia is something that we perceive. The general idea of the book is how to make a game score that is meaningful and actually engages the player. So it breaks it down into different components like themes or leitmotifs, immersion, genre, technology use, etc. So she uses some of her own scores to exemplify some of these elements, um, like the importance of themes she uses in Assassin's Creed 3, and to talk about like the E-Day fix, and then also other things like genres and how that relates to the kind of music genre that you have to do in a game genre, if that makes sense. So it's all about the kind of the correlations between each other. I'm only looking at specifically a couple chapters in the book, but it's quite interesting just to pick apart these uh, smaller things to look at. So yeah, it strikes me as very complex that you're looking at a lot of different elements here in order to be able to talk about that experience of nostalgia. It's a lot of different like picking apart because a lot of authors actually don't really talk about uh, nostalgia in music. There's a limited amount, but I mean, in general, for the overall experience in music and video games, there's not a lot of literature in it. So for me to talk about nostalgia specifically 
it's a lot harder. So I have to kind of look to film music. I have to look to genres of music, video games, just in general, like not even looking at the sound aspect. So there's a lot of different elements that have to come into play for this research. Yeah, and it was striking that one of those major elements is the idea of memory. And I really see actually the modern phenomena of retro gaming that's been really popular the last couple of years is engaging with that idea. Because yeah. retro gaming is really about trying to replicate those experiences that we had as younger people playing games, right? right? It's not necessarily about getting perfect graphics or perfect sound. It's really about connecting to this is the experience that I had when I was six or I had when I was 12 or I had when I was, in my case, 30. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, you know, there, there's... That's a very complicated thing, I think, how we engage with memory. It's also interesting if we're thinking about this in terms of memory and history, because musics evolve over time. And part of that retro thing is really about engaging with earlier styles and replicating earlier styles. It may seem like I'm going on a tangent, but I'm going to connect this to Yoko Shimomura. <laughs> Shimomura herself has actually worked on a number of games that are series, so the Street Fighter series is, is one of the most famous ones. Uh, she started composing for Street Fighter 2, which ended up being the most popular of the Street Fighter games. But she's also worked on the Final Fantasy series. Uh, she's worked on a Mario & Luigi game, she's worked on Legend of Mana, and Kingdom Hearts, all of which have essentially gone on to be standalone series, even though a number of them have characters that are borrowed between various games. And Shimomura, I think, uh, having her be somewhat consistent in some of these gamings really gives, even though it's an updated scoring to the music, a flavor of having that connection to earlier content. And she actually sees a few of these games as kind of being flagstone moments in her own personal career as a result of that. That even though maybe she's not composing for the most current version of Street Fighter, there's still an element of her work that continues on in, in that thread. Before I get a little more into Shimomura, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the backgrounds of your composers, because one of the things I found really interesting about Shimomura is that she actually came from a classical background with very little experience in video games. She had gone to essentially university for classical music study. She often cites influences from composers such as Beethoven, Chopin, and Ravel in her own works. And part of why she ended up shifting from one game company to another, and also then moving into a freelancer at a later point in her career, is that she was actually not interested in composing only Street Fighter style pop game music, but was really interested in pursuing what she perceived as more serious styles of music. Things that are very commonly associated with fantasy games. So I'm curious what the backgrounds of your particular musicians are. Michelle, maybe if you want to start. Yeah, well, I found this great article online called This Sound Designer Behind Night in the Woods Reveals What Sound Design is All About. And it was cool because they were interviewing M, and she talked a little bit about Night in the Woods, but she also talked talk generally about how she got to where she is as a sound designer. I found the article actually focused more on that. So her background is not in music. It was actually more in visual arts. And as I mentioned, she went to Ryerson University and did an MFA in new media. And I guess a large part of her background was really in studying soundscapes and doing video editing. So that was pretty neat. It seems like she did a lot of experimenting within that. and 
that's something that in a lot of the videos that I watched where she was speaking, whether or not it was the full Indie Summit video or talking to somebody about Reaper and her experience using that, she really talked about kind of the necessity of almost being a bit weird and how that really helped her in her design process because that experimental element is really key to how she at least goes about sound design in her work. So her background is really more through soundscapes and then through video and she later discovered that gaming was something she was really passionate about and now she's working in the sound design world. So what are some of the particular elements of her style? Well it seems like she's quite interested in the idea of interactive storytelling particularly from the sound perspective obviously as a designer and I chose to focus my attention in my research on probably one of the better known games that she's worked on which is Night in the Woods and Night in the Woods was developed by Infinite Fall and published by Finji and she gave this talk at the Full Indie Summit in Vancouver in 2017 and you can check it out on YouTube. It's actually posted in 2018 but she talks about her experience with interactive storytelling in that video and I guess there were over 5,000 sounds used in the game, which is incredible, but she said try to listen as carefully as you can to these sounds and see how much you can learn about the story from them. So I thought that was really interesting and listening throughout the talk, it made me as a musician and you know, as somebody studying sound in general and what we're doing here, think a lot more about the intention behind everything that's happening. And as Brooke was speaking about nostalgia at the beginning, it actually made me think a lot about how within this game, M talks about how alive the soundtrack is because it's very based on location and the sounds are constantly changing and so with that liveliness I think they tried to make it feel for the player like there was a certain life happening around you and it just reminds me of how we're talking about memories and how we associate those things mm -hmm. with the sounds that we're hearing and it seems like you know it wasn't necessarily nostalgia that they were using though they probably used it at different points throughout the game but they really were trying to use a lot of different texture within the design to have the player experience something and feel something that they actually could relate to and probably their own personal life in order to make that connection more in the game. So Liz what's the background of your composer? So Mashiru Yamane was like I said, born in 1963. She's Japanese. She studied music in high school, actually. So she went to a musical high school that had a really strong emphasis on classical piano. And then she moved on to Aichi Prefectural University of Fine Arts and Music in Japan. So she was definitely studying classical music. She was studying music really intensely throughout her life. One statistic that I found was that she apparently wrote her first piece of music at age 11. So she's been kicking around for a while writing stuff. And then she started at Konami pretty much right out of university. So she said in one of her interviews that how she started working at Konami was literally, she was just looking at one of the boards that were posted in the school that had job opportunities. And one of them was Konami and she contacted them and then she started working there right away. <laughs> so <laughs> That's funny. That's exactly how Shimomura got started. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was with Capcom, obviously, yeah. uh, rather than Konami, but it was the same thing. She was in university. She saw an ad on a bulletin board. She applied having zero experience in music technology. Yeah. So um, she... I wish it was that easy today. <laughs> <laughs> So Yamane worked on a few games while she was at Konami and a few is kind of an understatement, but she wrote her first full soundtrack in 1988 for Kings Valley 2. A few games that she's worked on that might be familiar to some people, Nemesis 3, The Eve of Destruction, Motocross Maniacs, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Follow the Foot Clan, 
uh, Rocket Knight Adventures. Her first solo work by herself completely was Ganbear Gomon 2. But her first like big break deal was um, the Castlevania Bloodlines soundtrack because Castlevania is, you've probably heard of it, quite a, a series from Konami that has a few games in it and Yamane had a hand in all of them. If she wasn't the sole composer like she was for Symphony of the Night, then she was the lead on a lot of things and, and had a hand in the Castlevania games. And so just to list them, Bloodlines, Symphony of the Night, Harmony of Dissonance, Aria of Sorrow, Lament of Innocence, Dawn of Sorrow, Curse of Darkness, Portrait of Ruin, and Order of Excelsior. So after she was kind of working there, she's been there for a long time, and then in 2008 left Konami and went for a more freelance kind of deal. And then as a freelancer, her first major game was Skullgirls, and then most recently in 2019, there was kind of a what people consider a spiritual successor to the Castlevania series called Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night. That because the development was led by the former Castlevania series producer, Goji Igarishi, and then she had a hand in a lot of the music for it, so it has the same soul and heart as the Castlevania series, and a lot of fans of the Castlevania series um, connect to this, this new game. As far as her personal style goes, Dr. Lind, you were talking about how video game music sometimes incorporates a lot of different old styles and then like puts twists on them. Um, and that's actually kind of what she's famous for in Symphony of the Night. It's it's kind of a hodgepodge of genres and genres that you wouldn't necessarily associate with one another. So for example, like metal and classical Baroque music, and she meshes them together. And a really good example of that is the, the wood carving Pratita from the Symphony of the Night. So in, in in the wood carving partita, you can hear the harpsichord and the strings synth. Sounds very Baroque, very classical sounding. And then it's like twisted and kind of made techno. So it I, I really have music that feels rooted in the past and turning it and making it new and modern. In another article in the, the Dummy Mag, she says that her music always feels rooted in the past but brought inexplicably into the future. And that's exactly what it sounds like. If you could imagine like a goth, as music, it would probably be the music in Symphony of the Night. Brooke, why don't you tell us a little bit about your composer's background? Okay, so Winifred Phillips, uh, so she began actually her musical experiences in the public school system, and she has talked positively about her experiences in that. She said she had a lot of great music teachers, and from there she just kept going. Uh, she also said that she shared a lot of video games from a very young age, so I'm sure that also helped her incorporate this musical element as well into her education. Um, and she also started out as a composer, producer, and actor for a number of radio dramas. So she actually was working in the tech industry in a different line or, I guess, stream. But it started out as that. And then her first game was God of War, which I guess you could say is nostalgic now because it's been 15 years. So she been composing ever since for video games after God of War. Obviously this was a big hit for her and yeah. 
So this is interesting. Out of our four composers, we've got two Japanese composers and two North American composers, or sound editors, if you're looking at sound design perspective. They're, our Japanese composers seem to be classically trained, or North American composers don't seem to be trained in the same sort of classical background. So there seems to be quite a bit of a difference there. Uh, Shimomura, for example, uh, studied piano performance at the Osaka College of Music. It sounds like Yamane had the very, very similar experience. So I wonder if this maybe comes through in the music. Maybe we don't answer that right now. Maybe this is just an <laughs> ongoing thought. But it strikes me that you're going to get very, very different styles of music based on these different paths that these composers are coming into to creating their art form. I think it's interesting that M. Halberstadt did study in a program where she was looking at soundscapes and installations just from the little that you know I've seen happen here at the Dan school and the work that's that's done through the various media departments kind of interacting I could see how that would totally be beneficial to the work she's doing now and I don't know there's something inside of me as a student who's actually studying music and trying to have a job in music that always loves the success stories of <laughs> seeing somebody actually study in their field in some sort of related way and then end up using that training. I don't know. I love that. I yeah. think it's I think it's really great. It's funny you say that because Yoko Shimomura actually had the opposite experience in terms of I shouldn't say opposite experience. Let me back that up a little bit. Um, she was graduating from her university degree. She was looking for work. She ended up finding, as I said, through a job posting for Capcom. Her teachers and family hugely objected to the fact that she was finding a real world skill set job with her classical music skills. They saw it as a complete waste of her classical training. So it was interesting because we really got this, this change of perspective of, as well of you know wanting to be musicians and getting out there and getting our music out there and becoming working, you know, productive working people who are mm -hmm. being creative at the same time, but also this attitude that somehow you're throwing away a part of your tradition by shifting so radically into a more modern discipline. In an interview that I read on Gamasutra.com, Yamane was asked about studying music in school, and she said that there were so many piano virtuosos who had technical skill. She just, she didn't want to compete in that way as a piano virtuoso. So then she chose a university that had strong music composition courses and that's how she got into composition. And then in terms of her music style, she said that her thesis in school was based on the music of Bach. So she was immersed with classic, sometimes dark music. Think Toccata and Fugue, for example. So she definitely did use a lot of composition stuff in school in her game music. Okay, so now let's take a look at some music from each of the composers. I would like to start first, if you don't mind, looking at some of Yoko Shimomura's composition over the years. She's actually got a few games that she considers to be turning points in her career as a composer. So I wanted to examine those moments to get a sense of how the styles really change and how they've kind of impacted her work going forward. One of her most famous games is obviously Street Fighter II, like I mentioned already. And one of the most famous themes out of that is Guile's Theme. And this is the thing, right? You cannot see us on this podcast, but we're, we're all dancing to the we're music while everyone is playing. Around, yeah. yeah, we're all bopping around. We're all singing it in our themes. It's catchy, right? And I mean, that's essentially the point of the music in this game. You've got short levels. You're fighting a computerized character using some kind of martial art. 
The music is not really the main focus of what's happening. It's really there as background music. And it's a catchy theme. One of the things that was done with all these Street Fighter 2 themes is they were meant to sound internationalized. So each character has a geographic connection. And Shimamura has said in interviews that these songs are actually meant to be almost like caricatures of the countries that these characters are coming from. Guile is meant to be the American character and we can hear with a lot of the blaring trumpets and a lot of the like 1980s rock sound. This is really sort of your stereotypical like California rock. Obviously it's done video game style, it's using MIDI instruments, so it's not going to sound 100% accurate, but it really kind of catches that flavor of like a hard rock style theme. And you can hear things like really prominent bass and a lot of drums, for example. Uh, it's really meant to be a dance tune. Contrast that with some of uh, some more recent work. This one's from Legend of Mana. These games are actually not separated by all that much time. Uh, Street Fighter 2 was released in 91, whereas Legend of Mana was released in 1999. But in the time period between these two game releases, the technology massively shifted. So what we're hearing is essentially a shift from a very MIDI computerized sound to much more realistic sounding orchestral music. And this in many ways reflects some of Shimomura's basic training. We also hear that the Legend of Mana example is much more expressive, uh, has a much stronger role of piano, which was her major instrument when she was studying. And the flavor of the pieces is entirely different. Really, the Street Fighter music is rock music, whereas the Legend of Mana tune, we can hear mobile harmonies, we can hear much slower lyrical lines. This is very much the kind of style that she's maintained since that point. A more recent example is Dearly Beloved, her favorite track from the Kingdom Hearts game. And so we hear really clear similarities between this and the Legend of Mana track that we also just looked at. We hear very strong piano, strong use of orchestral sound. We hear slow tempo with long lyrical lines. And what's really prominent here that's maybe not as prominent in the Legend of Mana track is that there's a very, very clear emphasis on classical orchestration, particularly the use of woodwind instruments such as clarinet and oboe to give some of our main melodic lines. And a lot of this derives as an influence from French Romanticism and Impressionism. Those are styles that were happening in France towards the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. And this really reflects when she says she's influenced by composers such as Chopin and Ravel. We're hearing the same sorts of harmonies, the same sorts of ambiguity of phrase endings, for example. And once again, very different style than what we heard in Street Fighter. This really ties into a lot of her backstory as well. She ended up switching game companies. She shifted first from uh, Capcom to Square, which then became Square Enix. And then she shifted to do freelance work after that because she found that there were more limitations than what she wanted working originally for Capcom and then Square. They were assigning her to specific games that weren't necessarily in her compositional comfort area. And so as she's gotten more work experience, she's had that freedom to, to shift a little bit. The freelance move was a bit of a gutsy move for a game composer because she no longer had a full-time job. This was partly coupled with the fact that she went on mat leave, which in Japan is not necessarily treated in the same way that it is in North America. So it's her crafting out her own career in a way that still accommodates her to meet these other obligations. I looked at two different examples just because I wanted to get different range of styles that Phillips did. So the first game score that I looked at was for God of War, since that was the first music and video game uh, score that she did. 
and this one is a lot of just instrumental stuff it's a lot of uh, what we would consider the epic sound so like big drums and brass sound and synth and strings and then in her more recent work in the little big planet 3 soundtrack she did a lot more of like acapella or pop tuney music so i'm not sure if that's what the game developers actually requested her to do or if that was something that she just preferred but a lot more of the recent music like this series that she's done is more acapella, more bright music, brighter sound, kind of the pop tuny feel and the same kind of chords and melodies that you would hear that are more common. So I thought that was interesting. So this is the God of War soundtrack. Yeah, so as you can hear from the sound example, there's a lot of that big drumming sound, the brass, and then the strings as well. Kind of more of like an intense feel with the rhythm and the pacing. And obviously this is, like the game is called God of War, so you can tell that this music is specifically related to the characters and the plot of the game. And this is how they, I think, perceived it and wanted it, so they asked her to do it. So then looking to Little Big Planet 3, this theme, it's the Ziggurat theme, and this actually won a couple awards. So it won the Music in Hollywood and Media Award in the category of Best Song for a Video Game for this piece here. Yeah, so that one was just like an example of kind of the music. There was also a different piece that I started listening to because like YouTube has one of those like autoplay. So there's one called Pink Shoelaces, which is like this little rock tune that someone's singing and it's like English. It's not some made up language or Latin. It's just somebody singing English tune about pink shoelaces. So I just thought that was interesting because it's such a contrast between God of War 1 and then just this kind of abstract vocal soundtrack. So that's very different. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was really cool. So we're seeing a lot of stylistic diversity in our work. Yeah, like which is really neat because sometimes specific composer has like a specific technique that they always stick to or stylistic traits. Kind of like Shimomura's like piano, use of piano and that ambiguity in the chords and the resolution. Like I, f I feel like there's different things happening in this music and even comparatively to like the other Little Big Planet music, I think that there's some differences and things that are unique. Michelle, do you have a musical example to talk about? I do actually, yeah. So obviously I was focusing a bit more on sound design and sound effects, but in the presentation that I mentioned previously that M. Halberstadt gave at the Full Indie Summit in Vancouver. She talked about in her work in Night in the Woods, there's actually a train scene that takes place and it's pretty cool because the sound effect of the train moving was kept in the actual musical score soundtrack too. So that's a musical example that I'm going to play and it's called Astral Train. What's kind of cool about listening to that again now after hearing some of Brooke's examples, in particular the God of War example, 
is that you can kind of hear the similarity in the use of music and those deeper kind of brassier sounds with this idea of like a driving force you know that's really I made that connection as soon as I heard the God of War example there and hearing that same idea of like oh yeah there's that rhythmic movement that's happening you know and they're using much more of a MIDI kind of sound base for the night in the woods but it's still I thought it was really neat that when you listen closely you can you can hear a bit of the separation between the actual music that's happening and that kind of movement of the train on the tracks and there is that liveliness that you get to it you know I can understand where there is that interactive storytelling taking place and very much a life to the music but also the incorporation of the effects taking place because you know you hear the you hear all the music happening around you but then there's that very kind of oh yeah there's that life happening there's like the train driving underneath all of it so you still make that connection in the scene taking place it's interesting that you mentioned that too because i think the connection between what you're saying and the god of war and how you said it, it related to your soundtrack is the immersion behind it and how that actually draw, draws the player in with the music and the chugging of the train and then the continuous looping of that i think it really draws the player in when they're playing and then as well as like for example in god of war one like the continuous drumming and it's almost like a heartbeat or like a rhythm or a fast pace i think what's happening is that you're walking around and you're exploring and you're in these combats the music really it doesn't necessarily affect your choices, but it affects the way you perceive the gameplay, like you're in that moment. Okay, there's a few articles I think that generate conversation points, so it'll be useful to take a look at each one of those and to discuss. So the first one that we've got up is BBC Radio 3's Music Matters article called The Evolution of Video Game Music. Liz, I think you had a few things to say about that? Um, yeah, one thing when I was reading through it that I thought was just something that was really interesting to think about and understand sort of how the process of making video game music kind of worked and especially back when the capabilities of video games were such that you couldn't really have full scores in particular the three channel sort of situation that existed for quite some time and Manami she was inspired to make these three channel pieces by playing and analyzing the music of J.S. Bach she says, after all so much of Bach's counterpoint is effectively a music in three voices, three parts and so it directly translates into the three channel situation that they had to work with. And I just thought that was so interesting because they're taking directly classical music inspiration and applying it to video game music in a way that you don't really think about when you're listening to it, but makes perfect sense because you're using the same techniques that they would use to make their music sound full of life and energy and applying it to video games so that the score sounds full, even though there's only three channels of sound. Yeah, it's interesting in a couple of ways. Part of it is that early video game music is in many ways faced the same restrictions that early Baroque music faced. So some of the instruments in the Baroque period, uh, for example, playing a harpsichord before its uh, successor, the piano, uh, was, was created, the harpsichord didn't have the ability to sustain sound. And in much the same kind of way, when we're working with the three-channel video game music, they didn't really have the ability to play more than three notes at the same time. So they were dealing with some of the same challenges and dealing with them in some of the same kind of ways. Things like arpeggiating chords, things like having really fast moving melodies so that you imply multiple voices at the same time. 
One of the other elements I found interesting about that is it's really pulling from some of these composers' classical training, people like Shimomoto and Matsumai, really looking at the formal training that they had in these conservatory music programs and saying, well, this actually was a useful skill that they're, they're bringing into the video game industry, as opposed to seeing it as a completely different style of music. So the early games, so if you're talking about games like mid-1980s to late-1980s and then into the 1990s, when they were programming them, they didn't have as much memory that computers have now. So they were really restricted about like the amount of data that they could store. And as a result, they actually couldn't do like what we now know as like full orchestral or full MIDI sound. They could only have three notes that were playing at the same time. Three melodic notes at least. There, you could, there was a noise track and a percussion track as well that they could add in. But it's part of the reason that the music sounds like what it does because they're restricted to not being able to do chords, for example. I mean, they were basically storing everything on a game cartridge, mm -hmm. right? And at the time, I mean, this is back when computers were like peanuts compared to whoa, what we now have. Right. So to give you a sense, you could literally fit every Game Boy, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Atari, Sega Genesis, and Sega Master System game on one SD card. Just because of how little the data was in those games. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the graphics are so bad. That's why the music is kind of tinny. That's why the games, I mean, they're, they're long, but they often have repetitive segments because they can reference the same sections of the memory. Right. Yeah. And yeah. yet people go back to them all the time. Right? Well, it's nostalgia, right? Nostalgia. Yeah. 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 Well, Which Greg knows all about. No, I don't know. I, I'm not the expert yet. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. But this is the thing that people like it because it reminds them of their childhood. Yeah. Well, what's so yeah. interesting is when, when you played the music from Street Fighter, as soon as you played it, it just literally brought me back to my cousin's bedroom in the basement of my grandma's house when we would all go up and they'd have all their game, like they'd have their Nintendo game consoles set up down there. And it was like a trip down memory lane. It just brought me right back to when we'd all kind of sit down around the, the console and just play those games. Yeah. And it made me want to go back to it. Well, it's, it's all about memory, right? Like, it's about referencing your previous experiences. It's absolutely all about memory. Yeah. 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 And then the only other comment that I had when I was reading the article, the only other thought question that I kind of had was specifically in regards to the development of technology, making music in video games bigger and better, is does that make it more impactful to the player to have a fuller score versus having the three-channel kind of music? Does it matter how intense the music is or like how yeah okay um <laughs> to go off that i think yeah that's a really good question because people look at box music now and box music was compared to the Mega Man composer and how she did the music but people go back to box music all the time and play it mm -hmm. they listen to it they perform it and it's something that's considered you know very memorable and a lot of people can recognize that music so does that make that bad does it make the three-channel music bad? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Like, I, I think that in terms of... It's more of like a style, really. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily if it's good or bad. So we're talking about, like, nostalgia and people go back to it. So obviously they're doing something right. Just because it, there's more doesn't make it better. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean bigger is better in this sense. So does that mean people, when they're writing music for video games, like with the development of technology, were they writing more music and more like advanced music and advanced music in quotation marks um, because they could? 
or because they thought it would like add impact to the games that they were writing music for. Well, I thought calling, I think calling it advanced at all is a bit of a misnomer. If we're talking about the Matsumi example, she's writing quite advanced music. She's just doing it with only three channels. Right. So, you know, it's a stylistic limitation. There's a saying that actually comes up in music theory a lot, that composers are the most creative when they're forced to deal with limitations. Mm. And this, I think, is a prime example of this. The idea that you've got a series of rules or constraints what can you do within those constraints to make interesting music? Um, and I think a lot of the late 1980s games really accomplished that. That actually makes me think of one of the, I guess, kind of mini side topics that while I was going back through my own research for this week came to mind, which was in regards to sound creation. M. Halberstadt used her own voice to create a lot of the sound effects. And I think it seems like she's used her own voice to to do quite a bit of creating in her own sound library and one of the examples that she spoke of in a video I watched was her use of her own voice to make the sound of a car driving by in Night in the Woods. I thought it was interesting because obviously there are lots of digital and modern day sounds that she could have used for that and yet she chose to use her own voice which doing a bit of research that's something that the website Science Daily brought about is that idea of the human voice is a tool to convey meaning. And because the voice is a tool for communication, I don't know, I wonder, like, does it have the ability to change our perception or the impact of a sound effect that's produced by the human voice? Yeah, I'm going to pick out a few threads out of what you've just said. So when I was doing research on Shimamura, one of the things that came up was the sound effects for Street Fighter 2 as well. That's literally her voice doing all the, like, Ugh! Right. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> In the game. <laughs> So really, it's, it's, there's like a personalization happening here of her herself into this music. But I think it's interesting, this idea of voices communication that you, you brought up here, because a lot of the involvement of, that we see of women in game music and women in game sound connects to voice somehow. And in some ways, that's a gendered thing. There's this thing that's maybe problematic, but we see, for example, in the jazz universe, it's very, very common to have female jazz vocalists. It's extremely uncommon to have female jazz instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that the discipline is just not welcoming in a lot of ways to women. It's not receptive to, you know, having women in those kind of environments. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I wonder if maybe something like this is happening here where women are really encouraged to take on a voice kind of role but we see very strongly that they're underrepresented as composers in the discipline. If women are recording their voice and voice is a big part of their style or maybe their process as composers, does that affect the gameplay? Are they giving themselves limitations whereas males might not in certain like maybe vocal ranges or like sounds? You mentioned Street Fighter and some of the sounds do actually sound like male fighters. Yeah, and, and Shimamura uses technology to essentially create those sorts of things, you yeah. know, slowing the track down, speeding it up to raise or lower the pitch. Yeah, but does that affect the way we perceive maybe those characters? I don't know. Like, Yeah, it's a great question because it's actually one of the really common tropes in video game music. We have this idea that women's voices tend to re- represent certain things and men's voices tend to represent other things. Mm-hmm. So for example, when we get male singing in games, It tends to represent either some sort of fighter's voice, so something that's very rhythmically active, uh, very loud, or it tends to represent Gregorian chant. It's a very specific style of music that derives from the medieval period that reminds us of monks 
in a monastery. When we have women's voices in games, they tend to be the bard. So, you know, sort of the, the tavern bard singing their tale, or they're often associated with trauma. And they're often associated with some sort of pain or some sort of lament or some other sort of component. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of find the overall conversation a little bit frustrating because I think even the questions are faulty by their very nature. And I think some of the introductory arguments are faulty by their very nature. So, for example, the, the argument that a large part of gaming is made up of violent video games and women don't play violent video games. I mean, that's straight up wrong. There are a ton of women who play shooters, who play racing games, who play fighting games. And I mean, we've even talked about composers today who are women who write for fighting games. So it's out there, right? But there's this social conditioning aspect that's there that, you know, we're saying to our, our young women, oh, you know, real women don't play these games. You're not very feminine if you play these games. And there's this idea that, you know, a lot of women actually do play these games, but hide it from their peers when they're younger because they don't want to be seen as that nerdy girl who plays violent games. And it's... You know, there's it's a subculture. It's developing out as a subculture because of this, where, you know, women grow up and they say, no, I shouldn't be ashamed of this. This is something I actually enjoy. Something else that I find interesting, too, talking about, like, those stereotypes. There's a lot of women that work behind the scenes in the industry, on the sound side, acting side, and also directing side as well for horror films. And I took horror film class, actually, last year, and, like, 90% of the population that took that class was female. And a lot of the movies we actually watched were directed or had some sort of uh, association with female people that worked in the industry. And I find it's kind of the same with video game music as well. Like even looking at Elizabeth's composer, she did the Castlevania series and that's, a, that's technically a spooky series. Like she did the music for that. Anyways, just food for thought. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's out there. One of the things we chatted about in the previous podcast is that the Japanese composers we were looking at, there's a ton of women in sound design and in composition in Japanese video games. And we're not seeing quite the same representation in North America. Something I really wanted to read in relation to talking about women who are kind of disbelieved in a way when people find out that they've worked on something is this woman named Jade Raymond. And I'm going to read this directly from the article because it's really well said. It says, Jade Raymond, the Montreal-based founder of EA's Motive Studios, makers of Star Wars Battlefront 2, was the lead producer and the co-creator of the first Assassin's Creed game at Ubisoft, which the 43-year-old describes as the kind of game I love, one where you get to blow shit up. I don't know if we can say that <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> one where you get to blow stuff up. Directly relates to what everyone here was saying a moment ago, but then it goes on to say, she recalls the backlash from many male gamers she received after launching. And then there's kind of this idea in italics where there was no way Raymond was the lead of the project they wrote on gaming sites. She must be the face. Other people are doing the actual work. So, I mean, and then she, you know, she talked to us. She kind of stayed more behind the scenes out of the spotlight, I should say, after that. But she started getting notes from people saying that they found out she was part of that and that they thought that was inspiring. And that led her to cut herself a bit more back in the spotlight and to promote her position. But it just goes to show kind of exactly what everyone else was talking about. I think you're also raising a really good point that a lot of time women step back from the spotlight because of harassment, because of perception of their role in society, because of a host of other things, right? Like this is somebody who should have been able to negotiate that into having top billing on everything that they do after that point. That should have been a career making move for her. 
it's, it's astonishing to think that somebody would do all this work and have so much success and something to be so proud of that they've created and for people to go, what? There's no way that she did it yeah. because she's a woman. Yeah. And I mean, she has the exact same qualifications as any man in that role. She's got the same experience as any man in that role. Why would she not be able to do it? Why would the default assumption be that she couldn't? So I think this has been a really interesting discussion. <laughs> um, we've managed to talk about some really interesting women working in the field. We've touched on some issues that relate to some of the media around this. Thank you for listening. This is Game Music 101. You can find out more information on our website, www.gamemusic101.com or check us out on Facebook and Instagram, and we will see you next time. You win! <laughs>